Tonight's study is entitled, A Reformed Marriage. It so happens that some days ago, I was considering a, this topic, marriage, and, and I'd actually been asked to do a Bible study on marriage. I haven't done one in some time, and uh, I, I don't think I was, this request came because they thought I had any particular insight, but I think it's just simply because we haven't had, had one for, for a while, or at least in the opinion of this, the, the party that made the request. So I thought, all right, well, uh, family night's coming. And Pastor Gaiman asked me to speak on family nights, so this is an appropriate topic. So as I began to do my uh, preparations and looking into a few things, I got to be, was thinking about some of the Protestant reformers and what they might have to say on marriage. And I'm going to share you with some of those uh, thoughts tonight. But as I went through some of this information, I discovered that a lot of the Protestant reformers themselves had rather interesting marriage histories. And so I thought I'd share with you some of the challenges that they faced. It really leads me to the first point. You know, there are several constants in humanity. And one of them is the fallen nature of man. And this fallen nature means that all generations are going to face challenges. And this is exhibited in different ways in different times. So if you think that marriage is under assault now like it's never been before, you might be right. It might be more accurate to say that it's under assault now in ways that it hasn't been before. That might be more accurate. Because I assure you that marriage has been a challenge in all generations and in all times. And we may dismiss some of the risks and the problems and the challenges that were faced by previous generations. So since all generations face marriages, I'd like you just to take for a minute and consider the Protestant reformers and some of their lives. I'd like to start with, um, of, the, uh, of the five reformers we're going to look at real quick, like to start, I'd like to look at um, Mr. Zwingli first. Many of you are familiar with Huldrych Zwingli. He was the leading Protestant reformer in the 1520s and 30s out of the land known as Switzerland. Amen. So Zwingli was married to a lady named Anna Reinhardt. Now she began attending his church and he was known as the uh, Martin Luther of Switzerland. He was attentive to his message. He was contemporary to Martin Luther. He admired her charitable ways. She was known as the Apostolic Dorcas of Zurich. She was greatly admired by many. He was still a Roman Catholic priest, though. And, of course, clerical law said that priests could not marry under any circumstance. Well, he went against that particular prescription of the Roman Catholic Church, and in 1522, he and uh, his, Anna, his wife Anna, or Anna rather, they were married and became husband and wife. He was still a Catholic priest. They were not able to make their marriage public until two years later in 1524. It was rumored that she, he married her for, her for her money. She did have quite a few jewels. And she had quite a few, uh, quite an extensive wardrobe. But um, that may not be true. At any rate, their marriage only lasted nine years. In 1531, an army of Catholic states organized uh, an invasion, and the Swiss Confederation approached the city of Zurich and 
Mr. Zwingli began to raise a Protestant army, became a chaplain. He was killed in battle, and upon the death of her husband, she remained under the care of another, uh, another minister for some time until she herself died in 1538. She's remembered as the helpmeet of Switzerland's greatest reformer. Their marriage was happy, but it was rather short. Now, another man worth considering, his marriage life was like this. This is John Knox. John Knox still lived several decades later, and he was the greatest reformer in Scotland. We don't know much about his first wife. Her name was Marjorie Bowes. But four years after the death of his first wife, John Knox decided that he might think about getting remarried. Now, it came about in this way. He was visiting uh, a lady nearby by the name of Stuart, uh, uh, Lady Stuart, and while he was visiting in her home, this lady said to him, Mr. Knox, I think you are at a loss by want of a wife. He responded by saying, Madam, I think no one's going to take such a wanderer as I. I have to travel in my ministry, and I just think no lady would want me. She says, Sir, if that's your only objection, let me make some inquiries. She accordingly then turned and the next day addressed herself to her eldest daughter, telling her that she might be very happy if she married Mr. Knox. After all, he was a great reformer and in high esteem. But her oldest daughter despised the proposal. So <clears throat> Mrs. Stewart addressed herself to her second daughter. The second daughter answered as the eldest. Finally, he, she spoke to her third daughter. The third daughter, Elizabeth, frankly said, Madam, I'd be very willing to take him and marry him, but I don't think he'll take me. And her mother said, well, if that's your only objection, I'll soon find out. So the next night at supper, the lady said to Mr. Knox, Sir, I have been considering upon a wife for you, and I think I've found one. To which Mr. Knox said, Who is it, madam? And she said, My youngest daughter sitting right here at the table. He turned to her and said, My dear little bird, are you willing to marry me? She answered and said, Yes, sir, only I fear you're not willing to take me. He said, Well... If you're willing to travel with me and endure the hardships of my many uh, of adventures, I will take you. Upon which the marriage talk concluded. They were married quickly after that and lived happily together for a number of years. He was in his late 50s and she was 19. This particular marriage, of course, does not really resonate with modern American ears. And in fact, Scottish Christians were a little bit uncomfortable with it also. But they did live together, and they had five children, three daughters uh, lived. And uh, it is from those three daughters that John Knox has descendants today. So they had a very strange but successful match. By the way, if you got an outline, you might fill it out. I think uh, this is a type of study that might, the outline might be of value to you and help you out. So let's go to John Calvin. So John Calvin, he has an interesting story as well. As many of you know, John Calvin in the 1500s left his native France for Geneva, Switzerland. 
And he there was accompanied by a man named William Farrell, and together they worked the Protestant cause. Well, it turns out that Geneva wasn't ready for Mr. Calvin and Mr. Farrell, and so less than two years later, they were given three days to get out of town. So they got out. They went to Strasbourg on the Rhine River, and there they met a man named Martin Busser. He invited Calvin to become the head of their congregation. Well, while the church work seemed to be going well, Calvin's finances were not. He rented a large house and turned it into a dormitory for students, hoping that the rent would cover his expenses. It didn't. But besides the money problems, he had people problems that gave him headaches and stomachache problems and all sorts of things. He hired a cook housekeeper who had a sharp tongue to manage things, but that didn't work out very well. She had a tendency to scream at all of his tenants and when Calvin was trying to work on his second edition to, of institutes. Finally, Mr. Booster said to him, Calvin, you need a wife. So he agreed to have a search committee hunt for a suitable mate. It took him about a year and a half to finally find the first candidate. On the plus side, she was wealthy, which would be helpful in those days because he wanted the quiet life of a scholar and scholars really usually had no income. Her brother was an ardent fan of Calvin, and so things were looking very good. The match made sense to everyone, uh, except for Calvin. Um, Several problems began to arise, and finally Calvin had to turn her down. Candidate number two went like this. In this congregation was a woman who spoke French. That's good, because Calvin spoke French. She was a devout Protestant who had never been married. That's good. On the downside, she was in her mid-40s, and Calvin was only 31, 15 years older than Calvin, and in those days, that didn't seem like the way to go. So candidate number two uh, was passed by. The third candidate that was brought forward seemed also like a very excellent one. She didn't have much money, but Calvin thought everything else was looking really good, and so he said, that's just fine. But as he got to know her, he didn't like her. And the more he knew her, the less he liked her. However, the opposite was true for her. She had now fallen deeply in love with John Calvin, and she desperately wanted to marry him. He had hoped to have a more uh, non-emotional arrangement, but it was now complicated by her intense feelings. Finally, he asked his brother to deliver him by giving his fiancée the bad news of the final breakup. And Calvin said, I wouldn't marry her even if the Lord had commanded me. (laughs) Finally, he remembered a widow in his congregation. Her husband had died in a plague, and he had conducted the funeral. Calvin had been impressed with her as she cared for her dying husband. She was about the same age. Everything looked quite good. Everything looked very good, except that she was a former Anabaptist. That raised a lot of eyebrows, because Anabaptists in those days weren't just another denomination, they were considered a dangerous cult. Nonetheless, John Calvin married this lady, Idolette de Bure, and they had a happy marriage, at least for a time. He didn't write a great deal about his marriage. They eventually had a son, but he died prematurely. In the next five years, two more children were born. They also died prematurely. 
after nine years of marriage, Idolet passed away, and they had no children together. So his life was difficult, his marriage was difficult. They were practical people, and they had had a, a much that could be commended them, but their life together was difficult. The next gentleman is Thomas Cranmer. Now, if you're familiar, now we're really hitting the highlights of the Protestant Reformation because we've looked at the great Swiss reformer and we've looked at the great Scottish reformer and we've looked at the great uh, French reformer, John Calvin. And now we're going to look at the great reformer for England, Archbishop Thomas Cramner. Now, his first wife, they were only married a very short time and she died in childbirth. And this was before he became an ordained priest in the Roman Catholic Church. Following her death, he did become an ordained priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and so he took vows that said that you cannot take a wife. He was then sent by Henry VIII, the King of England, who at that moment in his reign was also a very loyal and devout Roman Catholic. He was sent on a political delegation as a religious attache to the European continent, where he traveled about as a representative and a formal representative of King Henry VIII's court. Well, he was running into Protestants here and there, and as he got to the area around the Rhine River, he ran into a Protestant named Osiander. Osiander had a daughter, and Cranmer did what was then would have then been unthinkable for a priest who was working directly in the service for a king who was Catholic. He ignored his vows of clerical celibacy and married. And it was a Lutheran woman at that. He managed to keep the marriage secret while he was on the continent, but in 1532 he was ordered by his king to return to England and become the Archbishop of England as a Roman Catholic and as presumably a celibate priest. <laughs> so he was compelled to return to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. This posed a significant problem. He solved it by <clears throat> keeping his marriage a secret and in arranging unique traveling uh, circumstances by which he had his substantial amount of luggage carted around on a large wagon behind him. Well, one of those crates had holes in it, and his wife was inside. He managed to fulfill for the next several years his duties as the Archbishop of Canterbury, a devout Roman Catholic, presumably, <laughs> and as the head of the Roman Catholic Church in England by traveling around hither and yon, keeping his wife secret, and when they had to travel, she would, get in, she would faithfully and loyally get in her box and quietly rest while they traveled from one town to the next, and it was safe to get out. This was, in fact, according to historians, rather astonishing that he was able to keep this secret. Finally, in 1539, it became too dangerous for him to remain, and so he and his wife, Marguerite, they ended up having to flee to the continent. In time, he returned to England, and of course, he led the Protestant Reformation in England, wrote the prayer book, and was finally able to make his wife uh, public. This was after the death of Henry VIII. So they did have several years in which they lived openly and happily as man and wife. 
and apparently they had a very happy and joyful marriage. But uh, times changed, and of course, he was eventually arrested when Mary came to the throne and was burned at the stake. And so she outlived her husband by a number of years. <clears throat> Finally, we have the story of Martin Luther. Now, his story is, is interesting. As you know, he was probably the leading light of the Protestant Reformation beginning in 1517 with the 95 Theses nailed on the door of Wittenberg Chapel and in 1521 reaching a, the high point in which he confronted the Holy Roman Emperor in the papal legate and said he would not recant his writings. Well, <clears throat> he survived that. He planned never to marry. He had actually ex expected that in time he would eventually be arrested and burned at the stake. But that didn't occur, and in 1523, he found himself helping 12 nuns escape from a convent that was being dissolved. And he set about for himself the task of helping these young ladies by finding husbands for each one of them. One by one, they all got married to men that he had recruited and suggested, except for one lady named Catherine. She was a feisty and outspoken woman, and this woman did not like the man that Luther had set her up with. She finally made clear that she would not marry any man except Luther himself. And that's how the 41-year-old former monk married the 26-year-old former nun. Martin and Catherine, he called her Kate, or Kitty My Rib. They had six children together. They adopted four others. <laughs> their, <clears throat> their household was noisy, filled with a lot of um, mm, sparring and jousting between the two of them because she was a highly competent and, and intelligent woman. And so she was uh, quite challenging to this former monk who had once upon a time had expected a quiet life of reflection. <laughs> they eventually raised their children, as well as adopting several others as well. But uh, in the course of their marriage, they really came to have deep affection one for another. And Luther wrote extensively about marriage. He wrote extensively about his own marriage. And so of all the reformers we've looked at, he is the one we know a great deal about. And he has passed on to us considerable advice about marriage. So tonight, for what it's worth, we'll have a little shot of wisdom from Martin Luther. Before we do, though, <clears throat> before we move on and look at that, now that we've looked at this noisy and blessed relationship that Martin Luther had, and we've considered the others, Let's look at a few marriage basics from St. Paul. So let's just go to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would please, and let's consider a few marriage basics. Now these are fundamental teachings on this topic, and I'd like everyone to open your Bibles and read along with me. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21 on down to verse 33. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now, I'm going to ask that uh, all of us read these verses. Why don't we read them together in unison? It'll be good for all of us. And as we read them, I'd really like the men to focus on 
what it says about husbands. And ladies, if you could just really focus on what it says about wives, because this is the premier chapter. Now, I think many of you will find these words very familiar. But in this time of marriage trouble that we live in, I don't think we could probably reflect upon these too often. So beginning in verse 21 down to verse number 33. Are you ready as a whole body in unison? Let's read all these verses together. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Show ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. <clears throat> himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and they shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Typical of the writings of Paul, he manages to weave several topics together in one section. And as he talks about marriage, he's also talking about the church. Now, our interest tonight is marriage. And from what we can glean from this, let's have our first basic point regarding men and husbands. Now, you got some good advice this morning. There are some really useful thoughts that were shared this morning. And Austin was very frank, and I hope the men that were here were able to hear everything he said and just consider his words. I thought he had, had some, some excellent points for, to share. Now, I'm beginning with the men because I think the men bear primacy in this area. It tells us here that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And we could spend a lot of time discussing what it means for a husband to love his wife. And I'll offer a few comments about that later. But you might just recall and reflect and think real hard on this point. The husband's love is to be similar to Christ's love for the church. And Paul tells us in what respect it is to be similar to Christ's love for the church. It is to be similar to Christ's love in that he gave himself for it. That is the point that Paul was trying to make. So if you think, well, a husband's love should be this or that or thus, Paul says a husband's love ought to be similar to Christ's love in that Christ died for the church and gave his life for it. So it is truly a sacrificial love. Now, we also discover in these, this passage, if we think about wives, another basic point here, White women are to reverence their husband. The wife is to reverence her husband and submit to his authority. Now you'll notice that in this particular case, 
the instruction for the wife is to submit to the husband's authority, it doesn't tell the husband, Paul is not telling the husband to make his wife submit. He, he gives that commandment to the wife that she ought to submit. And that's a useful point to remember because true submission is voluntary. And if, if the husband believes that he's going to compel submission, he's going to end up with a marriage relationship that is not like Christ and the church. It will be something different. But the instructions to the wife are pretty strong. That word reverence does appear here. And it says the wife is to reverence her husband. Wow, that's pretty heavy. So wives, you can reflect on that for a few moments. Now, let's go to another passage and make just a couple other quick points as we move along, just dealing with the very basics of marriage. Why don't we turn to 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. Now, here's a passage that also deals with marriage. Peter is giving some very practical advice. It's a little less complicated, less theologically loaded compared to Paul's writings. But if we'll just look at one verse, let's look at the husband's love again. The husband's love again, and we'll look at verse number 7, 1 Peter 3, 7. So, gentlemen, if you don't mind, why don't we read this verse together? Are you fellows ready? We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'd like every male that's old enough in this body to read with me. 1 Peter 3, 7. Gentlemen, here we go. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now that's in a useful and interesting passage. It has a couple of words that are worth calling out. In fact, since it's just one verse, men, and I want you to really let this verse settle into your brain, why don't we read it again? Are you ready? Verse 7, one more time. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. A couple of quick points before we move on to the ladies. It tells us that the lady is the weaker vessel. Now, you might think at first glance, and it does mean weaker. It does mean weaker. If you look that word up in the Greek, it does mean weaker. But you might think that that means an inferior vessel, and that really isn't the case. Even the internal context of that verse suggests otherwise when it says that the husband is supposed to give honor to the wife. He would not give honor to something that is... Uh, of lower quality than himself. It also points out that they are heirs together of the grace of life. That is, the life that we live together here is is a matter of grace every day. And finally, it tells us that your prayers will not, you don't want your prayers to be hindered. And so if you fail to do this, if you fail to give honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, that your prayers may be hindered. Now, what does this mean? So, very quickly, let's have an illustration. I have here a coffee cup. It's one of those that's meant for travel. It has a certain amount of durability. I have here, secondly, a a smaller cup that is more fragile. It is weaker, but it is not inferior. We have something strong, and we have something weak. This one... No problem. This one might be a problem if I drop it. (laughs) 
I didn't drop it. This is the, this is the husband. This is the wife. They both hold coffee. This one is designed for the work site. This one is designed for the parlor. The coffee's the same. But their function is a little different. And it's useful to remember that God has designed them for different functions and designed them for different scenarios. And if we can just reflect on the value of the wife being delicate, valued, Yes, weaker, but also valued, delicate, in fact, maybe precious. And that helps us understand why Paul would tell us that we need to honor our wives. Now, ladies, let's move on to you. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3 now. Let's look at the first couple of verses. So, on that particular point, men, here's the word I like, would like to just throw out for you to consider. I think the husband's love needs to have a tender quality. There's a blank on your sheet of paper there. And I would suggest that you put in the word tender because I, I think that's very important. I think that's something that a husband has to understand, that his duty toward his wife is to have a tender quality in his love. And if that's not present, then he really isn't loving his wife the way I believe Christ would have him to do so. Now let's look with the ladies at the first two verses here of this chapter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. All right, ladies, are you ready? Now I'd like every female that's old enough to read to read with me verses 1 and two. First Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Ladies, are you ready? All you females, here we go. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Very good, ladies. You're pretty good readers. Um, let's read it one more time, however. I want you to reflect on these words. Every word counts. Are you ready, ladies? Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So this is some pretty strong language for a lady to consider. Her conversation should be chaste. It should be laced or coupled with fear and respect. She is to be in subjection. And she has the ability, though, in her conversation to influence and win over her husband, perhaps. But she has to do it in a highly respectful manner. So it tells us that the wife's submission really must have a respectful quality. She needs to have a strong, respectful quality. And without that respect for her husband... Whether or not she feels he deserves it, uh, the marriage is going to be challenged. Now, I'd like to return to Ephesians chapter 5 for one final point before we move on and return to Martin Luther. Now, back in Ephesians chapter 5, you might notice the first verse we read uh, stood out a little bit in contradistinction to the others, or at least on the surface. Ephesians 5.21, let me call your attention to that verse. Now, verses 22 through 33 are, are relatively easy to understand, I suppose. It turns out that uh, verse 22, when we look at Ephesians 5, it tells us the wives are submitting to their husbands. What's interesting is in verse 21, it tells us that, that we should be submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God. 
There has been a little bit of a debate as to whether or not verse 21 belongs in the section dealing with marriage or if it belongs in the previous subject matter. That is to say, which verse begins the discussion of marriage? Is it verse 22 or is it verse 21? For a long time, I thought it was probably verse 22. But I've come to change my mind, and I, probably most Bible scholars that, that, that look at this would also say, agree with this, that 21 is really where the discussion of marriage begins. And it's not setting up a contradiction between 21 and 22. What it's really doing is it's telling us that the authority structure that God has designed in which a wife is to be under the authority of her husband and her husband is to be under the authority of Christ, both elements have to be functioning well in order to work. Now, feminism reacts against that. But men react against feminism. And the reaction of men against the feminist spirit has in many cases led to an overbalance with men in which they demand and expect that their wife be submissive to them, but they are not yielding to any authority themselves. And when a man does not yield to an authority above himself, but he expects his wife to yield to his authority, he is setting up a dynamic in his home that will be destructive. It will not be useful, it will not be blessed, And so what it's going to bring forth is a sense of arbitrary leadership. And so I would like to suggest that arbitrary leadership from the husband has the potential to bring disaster. And this, my own observations over time confirm what I'm telling you now, that men must come under the authority of others. That is, and, and really, I, I, to be very plain, men, you need to be under the authority of, a, of, of the church. Amen. Now, that doesn't mean the church is going to invade your private life and follow you around. What it does mean, though, is that your, 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 your wife and your children are going to, uh, to sense that you are accountable to someone else. And you are not a complete free agent to do what you want and interpret the Bible willy-nilly as you wish. That is not a godly man. It is not a wise man. It is not a man that's under authority. It's not a man that is under the authority of Christ. And you're setting yourself up to have trouble in your home. There's going to be tension and drama, and uh, you're going to be, um, be disappointed, I believe. So arbitrary leadership from the husband can bring disaster, and that's really what Paul is telling us in verse 21 is that we all have to be under authority. And if you want to command authority, you must be under authority. And that is a basic principle of leadership. If you wish to command authority, be under authority. Now, let's return to Martin Luther. We've kind of looked at some basics in marriage, and we've looked at some basic texts, so I won't elaborate any further there. Let's go to Martin Luther's extensive writings, and let me just give you a few, because he has a lot of practical advice about marriage. So I'm going to give you a quote from Martin Luther, and then I'm going to interpret it for you, what I think you ought to think about that particular quote based on his other writings. Are you ready? The first thing that Martin Luther has for us is this. He said, there is no more lovely, friendly, or charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. 
No more lovely, friendly, or charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. The message here is very simple, not complex at all. Kindness and mutual service make a friendship. You want your wife to be your friend, gentlemen. And wives, you want your husband to be your friend. And so if you want a friend, be friendly. (laughs) (laughs) Kindness and mutual service are going to create a climate of friendliness so that you can have a friend in your marriage. Let's go to the next one. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home. And let the husband make her sorry to see him leave. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let the husband make her sorry to see him leave. The message here is that Luther's best friend was his wife, Kitty. His best friend. So should yours be. You want your wife not merely to be your friend, gentlemen. You want her to be your best friend. And ladies, you don't want another lady to be your best friend. You want your husband to be your best friend. That's the kind of marriage that Martin had with his feisty wife. (laughs) And that's the kind of marriage that I think all of us should strive for, that your best friend is your spouse. The third one, Luther wrote, union of flesh does nothing. There must also be a union of the manners and of the mind. Union of flesh does nothing. There must also be a union of the manners and of the mind. I believe when he uses the word manners, I think he means lifestyle. Lifestyle. And the mind means a set of values. And the message really is this. Looking at the world in the same way makes your best friend your lifelong teammate. Your lifelong teammate. And this is easy to be on the same team because you see things the same. You have a union of the mind and of the manners. Now, if we continue, this one pertains to the man, the husband. On the other side of your outline, we have this. The Christian is supposed to love his neighbor. And since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. The Christian is supposed to love his neighbor, and since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. That near neighbor is close enough to touch in the middle of the night when you sleep, at least if if you're sharing a bed, which I hope you probably are. I guess I won't press that point too hard for some of you, but we'll... um... What's the message? This is really a message for the husband. And I want you gentlemen to really think about this. A husband's love is the prime driver of the relationship. The husband's love is the prime driver of the relationship. Now this is consistent with the metaphor that we have regarding Christ and the church. Christ's love is the prime driver of your relationship with him. It is the love of God that called you. 
It is the love of God that moves you. It is the love of God that works in your heart. It is the love of God that draws you unto Him. It is the love of God that pulls you to Him. You didn't choose God. God chose you. And it's the love of God that reached out and grabbed you while you were yet in your sin and drew you unto Christ. It is the love of Christ that is the prime driver in our relationship with Him. It is the husband's love that is the prime driver in a marriage. And it is the constant, unremitting, godly love of a husband that, 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 that moves the relationship in the right direction. Everything else really is secondary as I see it. So husbands, you bear a greater responsibility in a successful marriage than the ladies. That's my opinion. Next. Martin Luther had this to say. He said, here you have the ornament that distinguishes the woman. Namely, that she is the fount of all living things, beings, excuse me, beings. Here you have the ornament that distinguishes the woman. Namely, that she is the fount of all living beings. The message we have here is simply this. Luther valued his wife as a treasure. He valued his wife as a treasure. Placing that high value on his wife did not make her harder to live with. In fact, it was the reverse. Catherine was exceptionally loyal to her husband. She was fiercely loyal to his husband. He had many enemies. He had many dangers. And he needed a loyal wife, and God gave him one. He was wise enough to treasure her as the mother of his children, as the fount of living beings, the vessel by which all things come forward that are of of usefulness in the future, children and grandchildren. And she responded with intense loyalty because he valued her as a treasure. Now, every man wants his wife to be loyal. If you want your wife to be devoted to you and stick with you and be on your side all the time and to be angry if someone criticizes you, wouldn't that be great, of course, gentlemen? Wouldn't that be great if someone criticizes you and you know that your wife's going to come out and ready to put up her fists for you? <laughs> if you want that kind of loyalty, you've got to do your part. You've got to value her as a treasure. Next, when a man looks at his wife as if she were the only woman on earth, and when a woman looks at her husband in the same way, not even the sun itself sparkles more brightly and lights up your eyes more than that of your own husband or wife. So what's the message here? The message is this. The emotional energy that you put into the relationship determines what emotional strength you can draw from it. All right, so let me repeat that. The emotional energy that you put into the relationship is going to determine what kind of emotional strength that you can draw from it. Now, all of us in our own moments and times need emotional support and strength. I mean, that's why it is so, it's such a wonderful thing for a husband to have a good wife even though men tend to be less emotional and seem to be somewhat more durable 
uh, there are moments when men themselves are not unbreakable, and a good wife can really uh, be of a great assistance. And so, ladies and men, both of you, if you want emotional strength that you can draw upon, you've got to put emotional energy into that relationship. And without that energy being poured in, you're not going to have very much to draw out. Now, we've got a little time left. I'm going to shift gears ever so slightly to deal with what I think is one of the uh, most fundamental problems in marriage. There are many problems in marriage, and um, I, I do not consider myself an authority on marriage, and I'm speaking on this topic tonight as, uh, because it was requested. But I do have a few observations, and I hope they're of value to you. So it turns out that <clears throat> the greatest of sins, according to many scholars going back in time, is probably this one. It's pride. It's pride. They believe pride might have been the very first sin to ever exist. Pride in Satan, in Lucifer. And in terms of the seven cardinal sins, pride is always the first one on the list. It is one of the slipperiest, the most subtle, and the most destructive. It is more difficult to identify and is certainly very difficult to deal with when it has been identified. So it turns out that marriage is like any other human relationship. And in in marriage, the first and greatest of sins is generally the most destructive in the marriage relationship. Because no matter what the point of contention, whether it's money, or whether it's, uh, you know, recreation, or whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is, the bad habits of the other one, pride is going to find itself into the conversation you can count on that. Pride will find itself into that conversation. So I'd like to just share with you a couple of quick verses regarding pride. And there are many, many in Scripture that we could call upon. But before we move on, let me just give you a couple of quick passages from Psalm 73. I've written them down there on your outline so that you have them for future reference, if you like this. In Psalm 73, in verse 6, It says, therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain. What does that mean, compasseth? Pride compasseth about as a chain. So whoever this is talking about, and it really doesn't matter, the point is that pride wraps around a person like a chain. Well, how many of us want to be chained up? Well, nobody does, but that's what pride does to you. Chains limit your mobility. They limit your options. They limit your ability to function. And that's what pride does. It it provides a a chokehold and a limitation that prevents you from doing that which you know is right, that which you know is constructive, that which you know is useful. But pride stops you because pride wraps around you like a chain. Proverbs 13, there's another great little nugget of wisdom, and there are many others I could have selected. Proverbs 13, verse 10, only by pride cometh contention. Now, contention is just an old word for argument, strife, debate, and all the squabbling and argumentation that can accompany a marriage relationship. It says that the contention comes by pride. Pride is at the root of every single disagreement and argument. 
And if it's not at the very, very beginning, it creeps into the relationship and into the discussion very, very quickly. It is what prevents conversations and arguments from being resolved. Pride is an exceedingly destructive quality. Daniel. Now, of course, this particular point of pride doesn't have anything to do with marriage. But you can see in the application of the concept that it has a lot to do with marriage. Daniel chapter 5 and verse number 20, we break into this, this story in uh, the middle of this prophetic book. It tells us regarding Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 5 verse 20, it says, when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride. Now, by experience, you can probably relate to the idea that you have seen someone who is, their mind has been hardened by their pride. Well, it happens to you too. So just take the person you're thinking about and then reflect on your own life, and you can probably find examples in your own life in which you have been hardened because of pride. Now, a little bit about pride as we apply it to marriage. Four quick points. Pride is presumptuous of expectations. Pride is presumptuous about expectations. A husband expects certain things of his wife. He just presumes that she ought to do this, that, and thus. A wife expects certain things of her husband. She presumes this, that, and thus. And pride is what's pushing that forward. The question is, what do you presume of your spouse? And are those presumptions, presumptions are, they, are they useful, are they helpful, are they even valid? And how are you going to deal with expectations that are not fulfilled? Because when expectations are not fulfilled, you usually have the beginning of anger, and out of anger grows pride. Second, pride discounts the value of others. It discounts, it lowers, it reduces the value of others. So the question in marriage is, do you value your spouse highly? How highly do you value your spouse? Do you really value them? It's easy to say that you do, but it's maybe a little harder to make that a reality and to make them feel valued. We could turn the question around. You could turn, if you've got enough courage, and to ask your spouse, do you feel valued? Ask your spouse that sometime. Do you feel valued? Do I, do I va really value you? Do you feel like I value you? Or do you feel like I diminish you and discount your value? Third, pride overestimates self. It overestimates yourself. It gives yourself credit for things that you haven't really done. It gives yourself, you say, well, I'm, I'm doing quite well in this area. I'm very confident. Well, maybe you shouldn't be very confident. It overestimates your own self. So do you overestimate your own worth? It's very common. Finally, pride causes reactions in others. It causes reactions in others. In a marriage relationship, it doesn't take long for the husband and wife to get to know each other well enough to perceive when pride has crept into a person's mind and heart. They don't actually have to even speak. They don't have to 
gesture. They don't have to have a facial expression. In fact, it might be an absence of speaking or an absence of a gesture or an absence of a facial expression that the spouse immediately picks up something's wrong and they're angry and they're filled with pride and hurt or whatever it is. So pride causes reactions in others. And so the reaction usually is where the strife begins. That reaction is the argument, is the, is the problem, it is the point of contention. So let me ask you this question. How many times are arguments a reaction to your own pride? So you might think, well, I didn't start the argument. Well, it's true, perhaps you didn't give the first word. But your spouse perceived a sense of pride, a sense of of, of overestimating self, a sense of presumption, or a sense of discounting the value of the other, that was all perceived to be present in your mind and in your heart. And they react against that. Of course they're going to react against that. Who wouldn't react against that? Because pride puffs up. You know, they sense you're puffed up, <laughs> they're going to react against that. And so before you say, well, I didn't start the argument, you might need to look a little deeper. It could be that you really did, even if you didn't actually cast the first word out there. Maybe you did start the argument in a sense because they were reacting against the pride that they sensed in you. Now, four final pieces of advice for you to reflect on. All of us need to continually to keep our pride in check. All of us must continuously strive to keep our pride in check. So here are four pieces of advice that might be useful to keep your pride in check. Try this. Listen to criticism in silence without interrupting to defend yourself. Listen to criticism in silence without interrupting to defend yourself. Now, that's not as easy as it seems. And uh, I, I do not find it easy. Because on the occasions when my wife offers criticism, my first instinct is to stop her before she gets very far because I think that I need to correct the point she's making. Even if I'm correcting her in a low tone, I don't quite let her finish because I say, stop right there, you just made a mistake. <laughs> well, I'm not alone in that. Most of you do it too. Don't pretend you don't. I've been around a long time. I've seen many relationships and I know how it goes. When someone starts to criticize you, it hurts and you don't really want to listen to it very badly. So see, let's see if you can really do this. Sit in silence and take it. Let them say their piece, even though you are thinking you just made a mistake, a mistake, a mistake, your fact is wrong, that fact is wrong, that fact is wrong, that fact is wrong, that fact is wrong. Let them finish. Let them roll it all out there. And when they finally are done, then you can speak you might think you've got a lot to correct because you think their criticism is invalid because their facts are simply not correct. They're not, they're not right in their criticism. Well, you've just been humbled. And that's good. That's good. Because pride says, I don't need to sit here and take this. 
That's what pride tells you. I don't need to sit here and take this. You're not correct. Take it anyway. Take it anyway. So listen to criticism in silence without interrupting to defend yourself. That'll, that'll, that'll keep your pride in check. And it'll improve your relationship because they had something that they really believed you needed to hear. And so hear it. Number two, think of something for which to apologize to your spouse. Well, I don't have anything to apologize for, you say. Well, think of something. Think of something. You say, well, I can't think of anything. Think of something. Think. I'm not saying, really, I'm not saying make something up. Although, if that's the best you can do, go ahead and make something up. (laughs) I believe the reality is, if you sit and you say, hmm, I'd like to apologize to my wife for something. And you roll your roll the marbles around your mind for a couple of minutes, you can probably finally come up with a shortfall in your own life. And if you can't, you've got a problem with pride. If you can't think of a single shortfall in your marriage relationship, you've got trouble. So try this sometime. Take this paper, go take it home, stick it somewhere you're going to see in a week or two, into this bottom of your sock drawer. Put a little X by that, point number two. All right? And then when you run across it next week, reflect on this. And then do it. See if you can do it. All right? Now, number three is probably not quite as hard. But it's really useful. Think of something for which to praise your spouse. Think of something for which to praise your spouse. Now, some people are wired in such a way that this is not that difficult. If you have an, a, an exhorter, outgoing, sanguine personality, you probably do this as a kind of a natural outgrowth of many of the, you know, you, you know that outgoing, sanguine personality tends to be either up and everything's great and you're full of compliments and praise or everything's down and the world's headed to hell in a handbasket and so for a day or two you don't have anything positive to say. But soon you'll be up again because that's the way God's wired you. Others are maybe just sort of a flat line. And they're more like, well, I'll, if there's something wrong, I'll tell you. Otherwise, just assume everything's okay. Just like the, the, the husband who says, well, unless I say otherwise, just remember I love you. So you haven't heard from me for a year or two. I told you, unless I say otherwise, you can assume I love you. Well, that's probably not a wise approach. But this is useful, and this can be a habit. So what we're really talking about in relationships, uh, some people find relationships with other people a little easier to cultivate than, than, than other people do. But whatever your circumstance is, we can all improve. And that's the point. Um, if, you, if you believe that you, you don't need to improve because you're already doing everything just great, then you're really not in a very good, that's really not a very good attitude. Um, I, I, I don't think any, any serious professional would say, hey, I'm already, I've been a, I've all, I'm a great electrician, I don't need to try to learn anything new. I'm a great engineer, I don't need to le- try to learn anything new. I'm a great computer programmer, no need for me to ever learn anything new. 
we would never adopt that attitude in our profession, would we? You would soon be behind in your profession, and as the years click by, you'd probably be out of a job because you recognize you have to continually learn and improve in probably just about everything you do to stay up to date in the competitive world. And really, our relationships should go the same way. You should be a better husband now than you were uh, five years ago, men. And you should be a, a, a better husband five years from now than you are right now. And same with wives. We should be continually improving. And so there are ways that we can do this. And we do this by building new habits. And this third point is simply a small habit that you can build and cultivate. Whether or not it comes particularly easy for you to do, try it. Think of something for which to praise your spouse. And you say, well, my spouse is really not all that praiseworthy. They're kind of incompetent. And that's the big problem in our marriage. She can't really do anything right. She gets the cooking wrong. She gets the laundry wrong. She's kind of mixed up. I can't trust her with the money. No, on and on it goes. Well, find something she is good at. Something. You're the best mismatched sock matcher I've got. Thank you for... I, I don't know. That's... That's, that's an that's absurd, absurd example. But... Everybody's got their pet peeves, right? All of us will have a spouse, a husband or a wife, who's got some strengths. So accentuate those. Praise them for something. Find something to praise them for. Find something to encourage them in. And it will be an improvement in your marriage, an improvement on your relationship, and you'll just be a better person as well. Finally, you might try this. <clears throat> and I really recommend that husbands as leaders, and being the men that ought to be sacrificial in their love, you might think about this, men. Item number four, particularly men, ladies too, but men, I really would like to speak close on this point with you. Insist that your spouse enjoy a privilege that you like but refuse to partake in. Insist that your spouse enjoy a privilege that you also like, but you choose not to partake in it, but you insist that they do. That's the kind of sacrificial um, gesture that demonstrates a measure of love. So, we close with that, that our, our goal here is to keep our pride in check, to learn on some of these practical tips from those who've gone before us and to build our marriages to make them continuously better uh, in this time that we live, uh, considering remembering that all generations face challenges, ours is no different, and uh, the challenges that we face are, are significant, they're grave. And if we don't take these challenges seriously, um, we're going we're gonna to suffer for it. Well, thank you for your time, and I pray that there's been something of value out of this dissertation. Thank you. God bless you all.